age is really part of the common history that we all share as humans. Also, please remember, before we get started, that what we're talking about today is theory that comes from fallible interpretations of data. Fallible meaning it's not necessarily perfect or error-free. Do not treat the model or scientific theory we talk, to, talk about today as scripture. Models of the Ice Age, models of the Flood, they are fallible and they will be revised. They have been revised since they've been proposed and they will continually be revised, our theories and explanations, and sometimes exchange for whole new explanations as we get a better understanding of uh, scientific data, historical data. But that being said, there is valuable, or there is value in looking at the model, the basic model we're going to discuss today, because there are questions that arise in life, especially if one examines history or science, questions such as, why are there ancient rock paintings of fish in the Sahara Desert? How do we explain that? Or how did man and animals get from the Middle East to North America after the flood and after Babel? These are separate continents. How did they get there? Or why did animals like the woolly mammoth and the saber-toothed tiger disappear? Is there any way we could answer those types of questions if we believe in the Bible? It's not just out of curiosity or understanding history, though, that makes exploring a biblically-based model useful. Even if we're not scientists or particularly interested in history, we are continually bombarded by scientific claims in our media and education system when it comes to the ice age. Today, scientists, for instance, claim that there were multiple ice ages in history and that these ice ages lasted thousands of years. What do we do with these claims? We want to be able to skillfully assess such scientific assertions and determine whether they're really accurate. So from a historical standpoint, and from an apologetic standpoint, I trust that today's lesson on the Ice Age will be useful to you. Here's what we're going to do. Pretty straightforward. We're going to watch the presentation of creationist explanation of the Ice Age. We're then going to review that explanation. And then we'll compare that explanation to, or compare broadly that explanation to a secular uniformitarian understanding of Ice Age. Now let's pray before we go on. My Lord, our Lord and God, I pray that you'd make this a profitable time, Lord, where you strengthen the faith of your people, give them a greater understanding of the past, make them more skillful in being able to talk about these things with other people, so that thoughts that are raised up against the knowledge of you, thoughts that contradict your scriptures, can be unmasked for what they are, and they can be shown to be foolish. Lord, we love your word. We love that it is totally trustworthy. I pray that you would give me ability to help explain this material today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, before we start listening to the lecture, let me just answer one more question. What actually is an ice age? Can anyone tell me?
I don't suppose it's a term that you're going to be using very often. The term sounds really dramatic. When you think ice age, perhaps you're thinking of a completely frozen planet or a blizzard that covers the entire Earth for months on end. But that's not actually what an ice age is. Uh, the real definition of an ice age is way less exciting. An ice age is simply a period of time with extensive glaciation on the Earth. And what does that mean? And it just means there's substantially more land covered by ice than normal. So again, I'll say the ice age is just a period of time with substantially more land covered by ice. Now, believe it or not, there actually are some places on the Earth that are permanently covered in ice. Places in the Arctic and the Antarctic, such as Greenland or, or Antarctica. Actually, about 12% of the Earth's land mass, all the land on the Earth, is permanently covered in ice. So an ice age then just represents a period of time where that percentage is substantially higher, substantially more than 12%. That counts as an ice age. So then, was there an ice age in our past? How bad was this ice age? Can we explain how it happened? And what evidence is there to support our explanation? Let's now hear from retired meteorologist Michael O'Art. This video is about 25, 27 minutes. So I'm gonna to listen to it for a little bit of time. As you listen, again, don't worry so much about the technical details, try and catch the broad concepts. And like I said, we'll review the information afterwards. All right, so let's play the video now. Was there an ice age? Well, when you examine the surficial sediments, the sediments that are on the surface of the Earth, in presently glaciated areas, you see a number of features. Now, this is the beautiful Athabasca Glacier in the Canadian Rockies that has been receding. This sign right there, that's where it was in 1890. And yet it has been receding. And when it leaves behind, you can examine what an ice does. It leaves behind rocks of all sizes within usually sand and silt, kind of in a finer grain matrix. It leaves behind in moraines and lateral moraines. In moraines and lateral moraines are formed when the glacier pushes out material ahead of it. And as it's along the side, it's called a lateral moraine. When it's in the front, it's called a terminal or in moraine. Speaking of this, I can't help but make a comment on global warming. Yes, all glaciers of the world have been receding, or mostly all. And yes, it is true there has been global warming, and I believe it is true that man has been a cause of it, but I believe that nature is part of it too, because between 1350 and 1850, we had the Little Ice Age, where all the glaciers in the world advanced. Now the, uh, we're in the opposite fluctuation where they're receding. So I think this is partly due to a little, uh, the uh, effects of the sunshine and less volcanic ash in the stratosphere of why we're getting some of the global warming. There's a beautiful in moraine, very sharp looking, made not too long ago, probably made about 1890. Another feature you observe around glaciated areas is scratch bedrock. As the glacier moves over bedrock, it has rocks in the bottom of it, and those rocks in the bottom scratch the bedrock. So it's typical to see stri striated uh, uh, bedrock or pavement, as they call this. Also, some of the rocks themselves get scratched, and a lot of times they get scratched in different directions. Here's a 
one set going that way and there's another set going this way like this and it's probably because the rock turned a little bit in the ice. The ice is more plastic and malleable so that's probably why you have striations in different uh, directions on rocks. So those are some of the features we see in currently glaciated areas. So let's extend those to features where it's claimed to have been glaciated. Here's one area where I nearly uh, uh, used to live west of Great Falls, Montana, near Augusta, Montana. These, this is the Rocky Mountain front. The Rocky Mountains were glaciated during the Ice Age, and the ice came about 10 miles out into the high plain and formed this end moraine, just typically is what you see at the Athabasca Glacier. I'm taking a picture of, uh, of this from this part of the end moraine right here. It was breached right in here. Probably when the glacier melted, it breached through the end moraine right here. So that's why there's a gap there. When you look at the material in the end moraine, it's very similar to glaciers you see today. It's rocks of all sizes in a finer grain matrix surrounding the rocks. Typically, they call that glacial till. Also, as you go, when you go up into the Rocky Mountains, you see scratched bedrock going east. In fact, there's an 800-foot cliff right along here. The glacier came up out of this valley, scratched the bedrock, and went down over an 800-foot cliff. Also, you find in the, in the moraine that I showed you previously, you find rocks that are scratched in several different directions. Typical what you see in glaciated areas. And this is in an area that gets up in the 80s for high temperatures in the summertime. Also, as you tour around the west, you see that out of some of the mountain valleys of the western U.S., you see moraines, just like you see at um, Athabasca Glacier. This is probably one of the best moraines that I, I've ever seen before. This is the horseshoe-shaped lateral end moraines around uh, beautiful Wallawa Lake in northeast Oregon. At about, it moved out onto the Enterprise Plain in northeast Oregon, about 4,000 feet altitude, where it gets probably a high temperature of 90 uh, as the average in July. There's the lateral moraine, end moraine, and lateral moraine. They're fairly sharp looking, indicating that the ice age ended not that long ago. Furthermore, a feature like this could not uh, form during the flood. Uh, this feature has to form by other mechanisms, and it's on top of flood sediments, so the ice age occurred after the flood. And here's this, uh, uh, another picture of that lateral moraine. You can see the trees for scale. This lateral moraine is 600 feet tall. And here's uh, what you see within the lateral moraine. Glacial till, rocks of all sizes in a finer grain matrix. And you see these uh, around the Sierra Mountains and other uh, uh, mount, Wind River Mountains of the western United States. Also, you see these erratic boulders here and there. Most of them I see are kind of sub-rounded or rounded. I think that a lot of erratics were, were transported by water. This one is very angular. This is the famous Okotoke erratic southwest of Calgary, Alberta. This forms a line of erratics from Jasper, Alberta, down into northern Montana. Just kind of a line and very angular, which means they didn't roll down there. Probably they, formed, uh, they were deposited by icebergs as ice was melting. Here's, a, here's another famous erratic called the Bellevue erratic. Now this erratic is, uh, now erratic boulder is, is a boulder that, uh, rock that doesn't outcrop in the local area. It's been transported somehow. That's what they mean by an erratic boulder or exotic boulder is another name. This one is found southwest of Portland, Oregon in the Willamette Valley. It's uh, 
composed of argillite, which is a slightly metamorphosed shale. And the nearest outcrop of that is in northern Idaho. And it's well south of the ice, where the, I, the boundary of the ice, by the way. How did it get down there? And it's very angular. The only way you can think about it is, is an iceberg. And how would an iceberg take it down there? Well, when Glacial Lake Missoula broke, it spread through eastern Washington, through the Columbia Gorge, and spread over Portland, Oregon, 400 feet deep and up into the Willamette Valley. So if there was a glacial Lake Missoula and a Lake Missoula flood, there had to be a, a thick ice dam in northern Idaho to block up the, the water in the Clark Fork Valley, indicating again that the ice age was a real event. So when you sum it all up, this is the big picture right here. Ice covered practically all of Canada. Just a little bit in the Yukon Territory was unglaciated. It came down to the northern United States to around, uh, they claim, northern Missouri, and I'm not quite sure of that. Um, I'm, that's a subject of research, but it got uh, pretty far south of the Great Lakes, and um, it covered uh, some of the mountain areas as ice caps. But interesting enough, in Alaska, the Brooks Range and Alaska Range, uh, they were glaciated, but the lowlands of Alaska were not glaciated. And that's where you find all those woolly mammoths, bisons, and uh, uh, horses, and lots of animals in Ice Age uh, permafrost in those areas. When you go to Europe and Asia, this is a, a general feature where the ice was. It covered much of England and, and uh, northern uh, Germany and Poland and uh, clear out into northwest Siberia. Now, there's a little question on the boundary right in here. And some people think that the ice covered uh, the Barents Sea north of Norway there. So there's still some controversy over the exact uh, distribution of the ice. But when you add it all up, ice covered 30% of the continental areas. The closest ice to this area would have been up in Pennsylvania. Can we explain it? Well, I believe we can. First of all, we can tell from the clues that it's post-flood. It's on the surface of flood sediments. And we definitely don't have it today in the present climate. The, the ice sheets in Canada are gone. So it must have happened in a transitional climate from the flood to the present climate. Well, that means the flood could have caused the ice age. Well, indeed, I believe that's, that is the case. So let's see how the Genesis flood fulfills the requirements for an ice age. Well, the, the flood was a giant volcanic tectonic event. Tectonic is crustal uh, earth movements. But uh, at the end of the flood, you have a huge shroud of volcanic dust and aerosols. Aerosols are fine par uh, particles about a micron in diameter. They would be floating on the stratosphere. What they do, what we know from modern volcanic eruptions, they cause cooler temperatures, especially in summer and over the large land masses. So after the flood, you'd have so much volcanic ash and aerosols that you'd cause a, a pretty good cooling right off the bat. Also, the fountains of the great deep and volcanism cause a warm ocean. There's lots of ways to cause a warm ocean in, uh, in any flood model, but the fountains of the great deep imply that there was uh, water trapped in the crust and it came up and at the end of the flood, uh, that warm water coming from the crust would have been added to the current oceans, resulting in a warm ocean from top to bottom and pole to pole. You could probably swim in the Arctic Ocean right after the flood. It was so warm. There'd be no sea ice. Anyway, the significance of the warm water is that the warmer the water, the more the evaporation. In fact, at 86 degrees Fahrenheit, you would have seven times the amount of evaporation of 
of water than at zero degrees centigrade or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Huge amount of evaporation with warmer water. Also, the mechanism is going to persist, but it's going to wane with time as the volcanic ash uh, settles out and the earth settles down to equilibrium and the oceans cool. Particularly, the oceans cooling is the key for the waning of the ice age. Here's kind of a schematic of how this would work. Uh, the volcanic dust and aerosols would reflect some of the sunlight back to space, cooling the surface of the earth, mainly the, the land masses at mid and high latitudes. Now, volcanic ash and aerosols filter out of the atmosphere, sink out of the atmosphere in about one to three years. So you have to keep replenishing the stratosphere um, after the, 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 the flood. And indeed, there's a tremendous amount of Ice Age volcanism in Ice Age sediments, indicating we had tremendous volcanism for quite a while after the flood. Now, they notice, they know that, Uniformitarians notice that, and they know volcanism causes cooling, but you know, when they stretch out the Ice Age in a two million year period, it's nothing. But when we telescope it into a short time scale, it becomes very, very significant. Now, with basic meteorology, you can guesstimate, that's, a, that's meteorological jargon, the storm tracks during the Ice Age. Storm tracks would be in areas where you have strong horizontal temperature differences. And where would they be? They would generally be between the cold, cool land and the warm ocean. So you'd have a storm track parallel with the east coast. Also, another uh, storm track would be uh, cold uh, ice, ice sheet and uh, a little bit warmer land here. So you'd have a storm track just south of the ice sheet. And storms would generally follow these. Now, these are general storm tracks. In meteorology, chaos usually rules. So these are just, these are just general. And most of the time, precipitation in wintertime storms falls on the north side of the storm. So it would fall right in there where the ice was building up in this schematic. The, this is uh, where the ice is still building up. Also, you can figure out where the main evaporation areas are. Generally, with west-east flow, you have fairly uh, drier, cooler air from the continent going out over the warmer ocean. That produces strong evaporation <laughs> on the east coasts of continents. And, of course, uh, in Antarctic Ocean, close to the land, you'd have strong evaporation. Those are close to the areas at the mid and high latitudes where you want it to evaporate. It's close to where the building ice sheets developed in Canada and the northern United States and, and of course, Scandinavia. Now I'm going to go on to support for the model. There's lots of evidence for wet deserts, and I'm going to show you a, a few uh, a diagram and a picture uh, coming up. But the evidence shows that the, the dry areas about 30 degrees north like the southwest United States, the Dead Sea area, Australia, lots of places were once much wetter. Here's a plot of the what's called pluvial lakes in the southwest United States, right in this area. Now, this is just in the Great Basin. There was lakes down in here. Death Valley had a lake about 600 feet deep. This is Lake Bonneville, uh, which is a great salt lake about six to eight times as large, 800 feet deep, deeper. By the way, the average depth of salt, uh, Great Salt Lake, lake not today is only 15 feet deep. It was 800 feet deeper during the Ice Age. Now, uniformitarians, how are they going to get a climate change to, to fill these things up in those areas? It is very difficult. But like I said, in our model, we fill them up first as the flood drains off. It will fill up pockets or basins. Uh, 
in the land at the end of the flood. And by the way, if you've ever been to these areas, there's beautiful, large shoreline features along this Lake Bonneville here. Shorelines and high deltas. If you land at Salt Lake Airport, look out the window along the foothills and you see the shorelines. There's a two distinct shorelines. In fact, I found shorelines around this, this lake. It's called Lake Lahontan. Uh, it's, today, you just have a few shriveled remnants of that lake. These lakes right here, they get up to almost 100 degrees now in the summer. Um, I've, I've taken pictures around there. There's a mono lake there, Glacial Lake, Mono Lake, and then Death Valley. Yeah, there's shorelines around Death Valley. Quite a different climate during the Ice Age, a lot wetter. Now, it's interesting that the Sahara Desert was much wetter. Man lived in the Sahara Desert by the thousands, and he has all kinds of rock art. This is a picture of a giraffe on a rock in the Sahara Desert. And I'm going to just summarize uh, a quote from the book, The Great Sahara. The Sahara is a veritable art gallery of prehistoric paintings. The evidence is enough to show that the Sahara was once a well-populated area of the prehistoric world. Yet, there is man's work in the most inaccessible corners of the desert. Literally thousands of figures of tropical and aquatic animals. Yes, aquatic animals. Enormous herds of cattle, hunters armed with bows and boomerangs, and even domestic scenes of women and children in the circular huts in which they lived. Why would the Sahara be much wetter during the Ice Age? Well, because you had a huge amount of evaporation right after the flood. The lowlands of Siberia, Alaska, and the Yukon were unglaciated. And this is a mystery. And here's a plot of uh, the mountains being glaciated. And the lowlands, which are, are in yellow there, are unglaciated. By the way, most models of the Ice Age have extreme difficulty forming the Ice Age. Extreme difficulty. Now, some will produce it, but a lot of times it's because those models are tweaked to produce it. Anyway, Phillips and Held said in the Journal of Climate, Siberia and Alaska, well, they said, we now have glaciation. <laughs> they did produce glaciation, but unfortunately, it was outside the areas where it existed during the last ice age. And that included the lowlands of, of Alaska, Siberia, and the Yukon. In other words, those lowlands like to glaciate. Why weren't they glaciated in our model? It's because of all the warm onshore flow. Mainly it was the onshore flow that kept it uh, ice-free. Now the woolly mammoths in Siberia. What were millions of mammoths doing in Siberia where they couldn't live today? Mainly because it's boggy, they can't get around. And the bog veg uh, vegetation is toxic to, to them because they ate grass. Not only were the woolly mammoths in Siberia, you had woolly rhinoceros, horse, bisons, a, a lot of different animals that lived in Siberia during the Ice Age. So what, what's going on? Why, why th these sorts of things? Well, first of all, you've got to determine whether the mammoths died during the flood or during the Ice Age. I think from what I've seen, that it, from studied, it's overwhelmingly they died at the end of the Ice Age. One of the main evidences in northwest Siberia, you find woolly mammoth skeletons on top of glacial till which means that as the glaciers receded from northwest Siberia, the mammoths came up in that area, and then they died on top. So they died at the end of the Ice Age. That's the distribution right there, all across the northern hemisphere. In fact, you don't find them in areas where the, the ice lasted the longest, which is much of Canada and uh, northern and central Scandinavia, which is what you'd expect during an Ice Age. And during the Ice Age, uh, they would be able to migrate over a uh, Bering Land Bridge. Now, as the snow piles on land, 
It evaporates from the ocean of the original water and the sea level drops. And the, the Bering Land Bridge is very shallow, so man and animals could easily migrate uh, into the United States and down through an ice-free corridor. They came down here and spread through into the southern United States, Central and South America. Now, a good indication that the climate was quite different during the Ice Age is the distribution of the Saga Antelope. The solid line there represents the current distribution of the Saga Antelope, and the, and the dashed line is the historical. Their, their range is shrinking. But those dots represent Ice Age distributions. You can see them up in northern Siberia. What's so significant about that? Well, the Saga Antelope has thin hooves, and it likes wide open spaces, plains, and can't negotiate permafrost very well, and swamps very well, indicating that this area was totally different uh, ecologically during the Ice Age than it is there today. During the summers, it's, a, it's quite a swampland because of the melting of permafrost. Permafrost melts that much, and it has nowhere to go, and so it ponds, and then you get all these plants growing in there, and it becomes a bog land. And it's hardly any animals can live there today in those, those, those areas. This is indication that we very likely had no permafrost during the Ice Age. Now, the uniformitarians, I think, have not really faced this, this problem because they grudgingly might say, well, maybe it was a little warmer climate. But, but some say, hey, it was during the Ice Age. It had to be a lot colder in Siberia. And they say, oh, that would solve the problem of those bogs. It freeze the bogs. Well, if it freezes the bogs, what are they going to eat? And here's a woolly mammoth timeline, whether you start with uh, two elephants that leave the ark at the end of the Ice Age or two woolly mammoths. I believe it was two elephants, and the mastodons and mammoths are part of the elephant kind. But regardless, they're going to grow slowly. They grow slowly, and then finally when they're gonna, their population is going to mushroom by geometric progression. Yes, you have plenty of time for millions of mammoths in a 700-year Ice Age. Finally, towards the end of the Ice Age, it, the climate changes. It's a dynamic climate. It becomes colder, drier, and windy, and they go extinct at the end of the Ice Age. This is the famous Beresavaka uh, mammoth that was uh, towed out of uh, uh, northeast Siberia, and that's generally the position they found them. It's in the St. Peter Petersburg Museum in uh, St. Petersburg. And it had a broken foreleg, it had broken ribs, broken pelvis, and it was in a general standing position. The question is, that really plagues most people, is how did these animals die? Well, I believe the solution is found in the deposits surrounding the mammoths. Let's take a look at what they were, they're buried in. Are they buried in uh, bog, uh, with bog uh, material, uh, river material? Some are in, in, in those, I think, but the mass majority of them are in windblown silt. This is a recent quote from a book called Mammoths and the Mammoth Fauna. A particular interest for paleozoologists is what's called the Odama. The Odamas are hills of perma, of, that are formed after permafrost melts around it and then leaves some permafrost as hills. This is actually a lus layer, that is windblown silt, as a rule containing the largest amounts of remains of late Pleistocene animals. They're buried in windblown silt. So what's the picture here? Well, I believe they died in, in, in large dust storms, sort of like what happened in the Dust Bowl era. This is a picture from the Dust Bowl era. 
that uh, if you were in a dust storm, you would see just a cloud of this dust uh, coming, and the visibility would go down to zero. There might not be any wind right before it. It'd be like with a cold front. Sometimes there's no wind be ahead of a cold front. Suddenly, the winds just really pick up, and, and it just the visibility drops to zero. And dust drifts, talk about dust drifts. During the Dust Bowl eras, dust drifts covered up uh, fences, machinery. Up, this one is up to the tops of a house. And by the way, I believe that the amount of windblown silt in, in those areas of Siberia, some, in place, some places, is over 100 feet thick. So I believe you had worse dust storms up there in Siberia than you did in the Dust Bowl era. They might ask, well, why are we going to have late uh, Ice Age dust storms? Well, because of colder winters, colder oceans, which means more sea ice, which also means a drier atmosphere, and stronger north-south temperature differences, all resulting in lot stronger winds and dry cold fronts, lot drier cold, uh, cold fronts. So here's the big picture. Woolly mammoth, peacefully eating uh, grass and buttercups. Yes, buttercups. The reason we have those is because uh, uh, they were in his mouth and in its stomach, uh, half decayed. The digestion of a woolly mammoth doesn't occur in the stomach. It occurs in the, after the stomach, by the way. I think that's a key to why we, we, the, the vegetation's only half decayed. But anyway, the winds come up. Uh-oh, he's going to ride it out. Guess what? He ends up like a snow fence. And what happens to snow fences? The snow piles up around it. The dust would pile up. He's starting to suffocate. And he's in a standing position. He tries to get out, and he breaks his uh, right arm uh, leg bone because it appears that he was alive when that front leg uh, broke. And by the way, there's an analog for this in Hot Springs, South Dakota, where some of the mammoths that fell into that sinkhole, they excavated 52 uh, mammoths in Hot Springs, South Dakota in a sinkhole. Some of them have broken four limbs also. That the researcher there thinks it was because they're trying to get out of the mud. In this case... Uh, the dust packing up would be almost like concrete. Finally, other dust storms totally cover him up. And he ends up in a standing position in the dust. And the perma how do you get him in the permafrost? This has always been a major question. One person said, do you jam him into the permafrost? No, the permafrost in this case will come up to meet him. And by the way, permafrost also shifts and faults once you get it up there. And the faulting can break the pelvis of the Beresavaca mammoth and its ribs. So in a nutshell, that's the story of how I believe they went extinct. Also, something called disharmonious associations. They find, as a rule, you have animals that love the heat and love the cold that were buried in Ice Age deposits together. In the book, Quaternion Extinctions, a Prehistoric Revolution, it said the late Pleistocene communities, that's Ice Age communities, were characterized by the coexistence of species that today are allopatric translated, not climatically associated, and presumably ecologically incompatible. Disharmonious associations have been documented for late Pleistocene Ice Age floras, that's your plants, terrestrial invertebrates, lower invertebrates, birds and mammals. In fact, it was common. And that's exactly what you expect, because this distribution would occur with cool summers and mild winters. While in the uniformitarian model, you have cold winters, period. You shouldn't expect that. One of the most outrageous instances is in England where you have 100 associations of hippos with musk ox and reindeers in the same stratigraphic layer. How do, how do hippos get up there during the Ice Age? Well, because 
I believe Britain was warm with a lot of warm onshore flow for quite a while and very wet, very heavy precipitation. So the hippo, after the, the flood and leaving the, the ark, would uh, find it congenial up in there. And finally, as, but as the temperatures cooled off, he, uh, he found himself in the wrong environment and he was being populated by reindeer and muskox and woolly mammoths. And finally, they all died and were, were, were buried in, in what it says here in this quote, in stratigraphic context, it seemed to indicate contemporary. In other words, they died at the same time. Also, they found out that when things were supposed to get better, at the end of the Ice Age, it was warming up, the ice was melting. Suddenly, all these large animals disappeared on whole continents or went extinct all over the world. End Ice Age extinctions. 100 species of large animals in North America, that's 70% died at the end of the Ice Age, including the horse and the camel. Europe and Asia lost 75% at the end of the Ice Age. Australia lost 90% at the end of the Ice Age. Why? Well, I think it's the same reason they, lost, they were lost in Siberia. Uh, it was colder, drier, and windier. I think the dust storms, which there's lots of evidence, was a prime factor in the extinctions at the end of the Ice Age. Here's a quote from a recent book. After many decades of debate, the North American end Pleistocene megafaunal mass extinction remains a lightning rod of controversy. The extraordinary divergent opinions expressed in this volume show that no resolution is in sight. I would say it, it can readily be explained in the post-flood Ice Age model. Okay, very good. We'll come back to our presentation here, our PowerPoint. I know that was a lot of information. It's good information, but I think it'll be useful to review and summarize what we just heard from Michael Oward. So Oward's presentation breaks down into three main parts, answering three different questions. Was there an ice age? How does the flood explain the ice age? And then what evidence is there for the flood model? So let's deal with each question in turn. Was there an ice age? Remember, an ice age is just a period of substantially increased ice coverage on the world's land masses. To answer this question, what meteorologists and other scientists do is they compare the features of glacier-covered lands today with the features we find in other places that are similar to that. And O.R. describes some of those features. And one of them are moraines, lateral and end moraines. Now, what's a moraine? A moraine, as defined by Oward, it's a collection of various sized rocks and a finer grain matrix. Okay, that sounds very science-y. What does that mean? But basically, it's a collection of mixed rocky debris all shoved together. And these moraines are also called glacial till. Now, moraines or glacial till, they're formed when glaciers move or expand. Glaciers, by the way, they're just large ice sheets. So this powerful moving ice pushes with great pressure on the rocks and soil in its path, and it either shoves them to the side, creating lateral moraines, or it shoves them forward, which creates an end moraine. And these moraines then are very distinctive. If you find moraines, you know that there is a glacier nearby, or that there once was a glacier nearby. There's another sign of ice coverage in an area, and that is scratched bedrock. See, as the glacier expands, it carries rocks with it. And this moving rock and ice, it lays deep scratches 
in the rocks that the glacier passes by, and vice versa. The rocks carried by the glacier are often turned, and so it puts scratches on rocks going in different directions, crisscrossing. So scratch bedrock is another telltale sign of ice coverage, of glaciation. And we find scratch bedrock as well as moraines all over the northern hemisphere. And then there are erratic boulders. Does anyone remember what erratic boulders are? Yeah, Rob. That's right, erratic or alien or exotic borders, they clearly don't belong with the rest of the rocks in the area. And it seems like they were deposited there somehow, they're alien to the area. And what's interesting about many of these erratic boulders that we find in the Northern Hemisphere is that they have sharp edges, which means that they didn't roll there and they probably even weren't, they weren't carried there by water, but they were likely carried by glaciers, carried by these expanding ice sheets. So we find these three telltale features in a lot of places in the Northern Hemisphere. So if the land, if the land all over the Northern Hemispheres has these features, but no longer has glaciers there, well, what does that mean? Well, that most likely means that the area did have glaciers at one time. It was once covered by ice sheets. But if there were so, if there was so much land that was once covered by ice sheets that no longer was now, then what likely occurred in our world? an ice age. There must have been an ice age on the earth at one time to explain all these land features that show glaciation. Both uniformitarian and creationist science, scientists agree that our earth previously experienced an ice age. And how far did the ice sheets extend? Well, you saw a little bit there in the graphic. Most of Canada was covered, about half the United States was covered. And in Eurasia, we had most of England, Northwest Siberia, Scandinavia were all covered by ice. There's probably a bit of the Southern Hemisphere that was also covered by ice, areas in Chile, Argentina, New Zealand, and Southeast Australia. In all, about 30% of the land on Earth was covered by ice during this period. That's almost triple the amount of land that's covered by ice today. So hence an ice age. But why? Why the ice age? What brought the ice? What caused the ice to go away? Why were some areas glaciated and some areas not, even if those areas were at high latitude? Second part of Oward's lecture, he talks about the creationist, the basic creationist explanation of the ice age. Now, when it comes to the timing, it's actually not that difficult to determine whether the ice age took place before the flood or afterwards because of the the evidence of the flood sediments, the rocks and soil that is consistent with a global flood, we have ice age material on top of that, which indicates what about the timing of the ice age? It would have to be after the flood. To be deposited on top of flood sediments, it would come afterwards. Now, meteorologically, there are two contradictory preconditions or what seem to be contrary preconditions to form an ice age. On the one hand, you need cooler temperatures on land so that ice can build up and not melt. And on the other hand, you need large amounts of evaporation to form intense precipitation. These things don't usually go together because of what you need for increased evaporation. 
you need warm temperatures, especially over water bodies. And this creates a seemingly impossible problem for secular scientists. They see there's evidence of an ice age, but they can't really describe the mechanism that would create it because you need lots of evaporation and cooler temperatures at the same time. And these normally would prevent one another. But what does give these preconditions? The flood does. Genesis 7:11, as we looked at previously, it describes the flood as a, or it suggests that the flood was a massively traumatic, tectonic, and volcanic event. Remember, the water comes from two sources during the flood. The water's from above, the floodgates of the sky being opened, and then the fountains of the great deep bursting forth. And that likely describes hot water from within the Earth's crust and even hot molten material from under the Earth. So because the flood was this tectonic and volcanic event, you've probably got hot water and hot mantle material spilling into the oceans. You've got volcanic activity erupting everywhere. You've got tectonic plates crashing into each other. And that means that we're going to get some of the effects that will produce an ice age. We have the volcanic activity producing aerosols, which find their way into the stratosphere. Now, stratosphere is just the second layer of our atmosphere. And aerosols at that layer of the atmosphere reflect and block sunlight. And without the sun rays reaching the ground, what happens to the temperatures on land? They go down. The land gets cooler, especially during summer. By the way, aerosols are just extremely tiny particles that float in the atmosphere. So on the one hand, we have, uh, on the one hand, we have volcanic ash and aerosols producing cooler land temperatures, which is needed for an ice age. But on the other hand, all the tectonic and volcanic activity is doing what to the oceans? It's warming it up. The warmer water evaporates faster, and as the or it says, there's multiple ways that water could have been warmed up, but it very likely was warmed up, and that that produced the increased evaporation. So the flood gives a coherent explanation for producing an ice age. You get those two seemingly contradictory preconditions, cooler temperatures on land, the higher levels of evaporation. But what's even more key is that these features are long lasting, but not permanent. Eventually these anomalies on the earth fix themselves, which is important for ending an ice age. Because you see one problem that uniformitarian scientists run into with their explanations of the ice age is that they can, in their models, sometimes produce an ice age. They can explain what creates an ice age, but then they can't explain how it stops. You can't get the ice age to stop. But the flood, if the flood is the producer of an ice age, it explains why the ice age would end, because the features that produce the ice age would have waned with time. Aerosols would settle out of the atmosphere. Even though volcanism, even though volcanoes would still be active during the ice age, that volcanic activity decreases, aerosols eventually settle out of the atmosphere, and that allows more sunlight to hit the land. Uh, moreover, when evaporation takes place on the ocean, what happens to the temperatures of the ocean? Cools down. That's what evaporation does. This is why we sweat, actually. When you sweat, it's not that the water that your body produces cools you down, it's the evaporation of the water from your skin because when the water evaporates, it takes some of the heat with it. And the same thing would have happened to the oceans. As the water evaporated, the oceans were gradually cooling. So these mechanisms that produced the ice age, they would have eventually disappeared. Now, Oward also talks about how 
using the same meteorological understandings, basic meteorological understandings that we have today, we can infer some storm patterns that would have that would have uh, taken place during the ice age. And we can see that the very places where precipitation most likely would have happened are the very places that just studying scientifically, we see there was ice buildup. There was a great amount of ice buildup. So it makes sense. The model makes sense. Now with these processes, how long was the ice age? How long was this period of increased glaciation on the earth? Oward says about 700 years. Now take that, take that suggestion with an asterisk. There's a lot of variation among creationist scientists as to how long the ice age actually was. At least one other person I read says the ice age was about 250 years. So that's substantially less. But generally creationists talk about the ice age taking mere hundreds of years, which is quite different from uniformitarian scientists as we'll see a little bit later on. But anyways, going back to Oward's model, we have ice buildup for about 500 years and then 200 years of ice recession, ice decreasing. So using the timeline we've been discussing in our course based off the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, this would mean that the ice age would begin right after the flood around 2350 BC, and it would end, remember of course there's gradual changes uh, throughout the period, but starting in 2350 BC and ending around 1650 BC, or about 200 years before Israel's exodus from Egypt. Now, why doesn't the flood talk about this ice and glaciation? I mean, not the flood, the Bible. Why is that not really mentioned in the Bible? Because yeah, it didn't affect the areas that the Bible talks about. You're in the Middle East. It doesn't really matter what's happening in the higher northern climes. There's no need to comment on the ice and snow. Though it is interesting that Job, which would have likely been written during the Ice Age, does talk a fair amount about ice, snow, and precipitation. Anyways, but we have a period of hundreds of years that would be the Ice Age. On the last part of Oward's presentation, we hear about how this unique flood Ice Age model fits with various pieces of scientific data that have been uncovered. And a number of these are mentioned, I'll just go through them. It talks about the wet deserts, places that are extremely hot and dry today have evidence of formerly great amounts of plants, animals, and even water. And this is to be expected if the Ice Age had a different climate especially increased precipitation in various parts of the world due to oceanic evaporation. And he mentioned two, two specific examples Oward mentioned. Lake Bonneville in the southwest United States was a much deeper lake at one time, but is hardly deep at all today. And then the plentiful rock paintings in the Sahara Desert of all kinds of animals and even domestic life. Now the support for the Ice Age in this model is the unfrozen lowlands at high latitudes. Now, high latitudes, we're talking very high, very far north on the Earth. Being so far north, one might expect that these places would be ice covered and devoid of life. But that's not the case. We find all sorts of animal remains there, Ice Age animals. So why didn't they become covered with ice if they're so far north? Well, the flood model explains that. These places were adjacent to the coasts. And because the oceans were warmer, the weather patterns were bringing warm air and weather from the warm oceans to these coastal lowlands, and it caused these parts of the earth to remain ice-free, even though they're very far north. Other animal remains, especially woolly animals, emphasize the unique environment of the Ice Age consistent with this model. Their remains 
there are remains of animals like the woolly mammoth in areas that would have been impossible for those animals to live, places that are swamps or frozen tundra today. This shows us that these lands were different in an age past during the ice age. They were most likely fertile grasslands. Hence, that's why the animals are really multiplying there. And again, animal remains in these areas are likely post-flood because, as Oward says, we find these animal remains on top of and in glacial till. This is not flood sediments, but ice age type deposits. Many of these large animals are found all over North America, which shows that man and animals were able to migrate to North America, likely over the Bering Land Bridge. And this is because the high evaporation of the ice age and the trapping of snow and ice on land did what to the levels of the ocean? Brought it down. You had lower sea level because so much of the water was already trapped on land, frozen, and lots of evaporation taking place. So this means that many parts of the world that are covered by water today during the ice age were actually not covered by water. The Bering land bridge between Russia and Alaska would be one example. Uh, England was probably joined to the rest of the European continent as another example. Indonesia was more joined, joined in various places, making migration and boat travel much more feasible, uh, allowing people to get to Australia, people and animals. <clears throat> Many offshore islands around the world were once joined to the larger landmass because of the lower sea levels. But this allowed the animal and people migrations during the period after the flood and after Babel. Second animal that helps, a second group of animal remains that helps explain the ice age and the flood model are the remains of the saiga antelope. They only live in a very small area today because they have such a particular preference for plains and for mild weather. And yet we find the remains all over Eastern Siberia and Russia. How can this be if those terrains couldn't support the saiga antelope today? Well, it must have been different in the past. And again, this, is, this makes sense according to the flood ice age model. Then there's the unique deaths of many woolly mammoths. The ice age did create livable environments in northern lowlands and other places, but these environments eventually changed. And part of the changes included the environments becoming colder, drier, and windier. And though the ice age as a whole, it caused cooler summers in various places and milder winters, when the ice age's effects diminished, these environments were no longer hospitable to the animals living there. And we also had the arrival of dust storms, dust storms as bad or even worse than the dust storms in the Dust Bowl era, Dust Bowl area early 1900s in the United States. These dust storms were capable of rapidly covering stationary mammoths until it was too late for those mammoths to escape. And you heard him explain that for one particular woolly mammoth that was discovered dead, but in an upright position, like was trying to get out of some dust. This really connects with, well, um, another piece of evidence I'll mention in a second, but also we have the concept of disharmonious association. The changing environments of the Ice Age resulted in this strange phenomenon. What is disharmonious association? Big sciencey word. It just refers to animals who normally don't live in the same environment living in the same place during the Ice Age. Oward cites the example of hippos and reindeer both living in England at the same time. Hippos? 
they live in a much warmer climate and reindeer in a much colder climate, but they were able to exist together. But then they all die at the end of the ice age. Why is that? They and other animals, why do we have these mass extinctions? It's because these uniquely hospitable environments that were created in some areas during the ice age, they disappeared at the end of the ice age when those factors promoting such a climate had waned. To be sure, man played a role in these mass extinctions, especially of large animals. Man often hunts large animals to extinction or to much smaller numbers. There's a lot of bang for your buck when you kill a large animal. It's also part of protecting, protecting the people that you live with. And so man probably contributed to the mass extinctions at the end of the ice age, but environmental factors were certainly working too. Animals that were formerly suited for their environments no longer were because the ice age was ending. So that covers many of the pieces of evidence that Oward mentions in his presentation. Again, we could explore many of these aspects and other aspects in more detail, but what's the big picture? What do I really want you to understand from today's lesson? Two main conclusions. One, there is strong evidence of an ice age in our world. This is not anti-Christian. This is not anti-Bible. There is a lot of evidence for this, and it actually fits with the Bible. The flood provides a good explanation of why the ice age happened and why it, why it progressed and featured the elements that it did. But what do uniformitarian scientists, what do secular scientists think when it comes to the Ice Age? Now, let me just briefly clarify. When I say uniformitarian, I mean specifically that they don't believe that any major events, any major catastrophes that would have affected the entire Earth happened in the past. It's not wrong to say, all right, the processes we see today, those are the processes that likely took place in the past. Creationist scientists are doing the same thing. But creationist scientists believe in catastrophism. They believe that there were special events that took place in the past that affected the entire world, like creation, like the flood. The uniformitarians deny that. They say, no, there were you know, some anomalies, but nothing that was that catastrophic, nothing that really affected the entire Earth. And so that really affects the way that they view the Ice Age. They do believe in an ice age, but unsurprisingly, they don't believe in a worldwide flood, so the flood was not the trigger for the ice age. In fact, for a uniformitarian, the uniformitarian in doesn't believe in an ice age, but ice ages. Current, current thought is that there have been five ice ages. The first one took place about 2.2 billion years ago, and the most recent took place about 2 million years ago. They actually believe we're in an ice age right now. We're in the part of the ice age where the ice is receding because for them, ice ages refer to vast periods of time with just slightly different conditions on the earth. And these ice ages, they progress according to a cyclical pattern. Within this large two million year long ice age, there are cycles of 100,000 years or 40,000 years where the ice expands and retreats. And we're in, like I said, supposedly, one of those periods where the ice is retreating and have been for the last 10,000 years. Now, what causes them to, to suggest this, to believe in multiple and cyclical ice ages? Well, it's because the, the one great cause that they seem to agree on as for creating ice ages has to do with the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Explanation is a bit detailed, but basically they suppose that slight changes in the Earth's orbit over thousands of years along with tectonic plate movements and changes in the Earth's atmosphere, it causes these ice age cycles. 
But this explanation actually doesn't hold up very well under scrutiny because the differences in the Earth's orbit and in the tectonic plates and the environment, they're too slight to substantially affect the Earth's environment in an ice age. And they can't, they can't produce the unique conditions that are needed for an ice age, where you have the high evaporation and the lower temperatures on land. So this is why actually many uniformitarian scientists, just as Michael Oward mentions, admit they don't really know what causes the ice ages. It's not very well understood, they'll say. But they are sure that there are many ice ages and that they do proceed according to cycles. And they base this off of the complexity of the glacial expansion and other bits of data like certain oceanic rocks and ice corings. And of course, this data is interpreted according to uniformitarian presuppositions. But I hope that you've seen today, there is a much more reasonable explanation for the ice data for the ice age. And that is the flood. The great flood of God's judgment very likely caused unique conditions on Earth that resulted in a small period of several hundred years in which the Earth was more covered by ice. That's basically it. Now, again, <clears throat> this theory, this model, this explanation that we look at today is not inerrant like scripture is, but it does help make sense of the data that we've seen while remaining true to the authority of scripture. This is another illustration of what it means to have a biblical worldview. As I, this is what I, I hope you're getting from our Sunday School lessons. And I hope that you're understanding and even implementing in your life. There is a lot of data. There's a lot of information in the world, a lot of interesting things to ask questions about and to study. But one needs to proceed according to a biblical worldview. And that means you start with the Bible. You can start with the Bible because it's trustworthy, because it's God's word, because it's perfect. You start with the Bible, and then you interpret everything you see in the world according to the Bible, your own experiences, scientific data. You can, you can rest on the Bible as your foundation because it's perfect. And that gives you a good foundation for understanding and creating models and explanations for what you see in the world. And this is not just true with the Ice Age. It's true with creation. It's true, and you think of some of the current issues that we have today, uh, abortion, sexuality, gender, psychology. Start with the Bible and then look at the data and you'll come to a much more accurate understanding. But when you start outside the Bible, when you start with man's autonomous reason, man, what man thinks is wise and right, and you come to, you come to certain conclusions, and then you try and read those back into the Bible, that's when you create lots of problems for yourself and for others. So in the big picture of the Ice Age, there's an even bigger picture, and that is the value of a biblical worldview. Now, let's see how much time we have left. Oh, we don't have any time left. If you have questions about today's lesson or about the Ice Age, please email me. But that's all for this week. Next week, we're moving on from the flood to an event not too long after the flood the rebellion of man against God at Babel. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word that it is sure and it helps us, God, it helps us to see clearly, just like a lamp lights our way, it helps us to make sense and to see what things really are in the world. God, there's still many questions about the ice age and other aspects of our past. And 
It's amazing to make scientific discoveries in these and other areas. But Lord, we will be wise if we proceed with a biblical worldview. The fear of you, God, is the beginning of knowledge, and it is the beginning of wisdom. I pray that everyone listening today would truly appreciate that, not just for this question about the Ice Age, but for all of life. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome, and I'll see you next week.